0: Seated, and let's turn together to Daniel chapter three. It's in an insert in your service sheets. We're getting to some longer uh, portions of scripture together, and so we we put it in an insert. Uh, you can also find it if you grab one of the church Bibles on page 692 and 693. Uh, it is it is quite a long bit of scripture, but it's it's narrative, so it does it does move uh, quite well, and, and the sermon won't won't. Uh, be, the, the reading's almost as long as the sermon, to be honest, so uh, you can look forward to that. But uh, this, is, this is God's word uh, from Daniel chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, The counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O oh king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, "'Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'that that you do not serve my gods "'or worship the golden image that I have set up? "'Now if you are ready, "'when you hear the sound of the horn, "'pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, "'and every kind of music, "'to fall down and worship the image "'that I have made, well and good. "'But if you do not worship, "'you shall immediately be cast "'into a burning, fiery furnace.'" And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. "'Counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. "'The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. "'Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command.' Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forevermore. Now, this week we saw the the state opening of Parliament. I know uh, many of you perhaps uh, uh, take it for granted, but for those of us who are from another another part of the world, uh, it's quite a remarkable thing to see. And in it, you see this uh, this this symbolism of a historic power struggle. The the Queen comes in uh, this week. This week, though, it was it was the Prince of Wales and the the Duke of Cambridge, but. But the, the monarch comes in and, and sends Blackrod to, the, to the, the house of commons t- in order to command them to come and hear, hear her speech. And, and so as Blackrod uh, approaches the door of the commons, going from the house of lords to the commons, uh, she has it slammed in her face, showing that, that the house of, of commons uh, is independent from the monarchy. It, it belongs to the people. Finally, they, they open the door. And when ordered to go and hear the speech, they they do so, but only only when they're good and ready. It's by their own choice. They want to make that really clear that that the, the Parliament is independent from the Queen. You see, the state opening of Parliament is this this elaborate and well rehearsed dance, isn't it? In which we wrestle with where does where does the real power lie? And the the authority of our government to to rule. Who who's in charge? of the country? Who decides the fate of its citizens, its people? In the end, the power lies with parliament, but with, with the tip of the cap to the monarch, right? We all like Her Majesty the Queen. Now, the book of Daniel is wrestling with the same question, but on, on a very different scale. Who has authority over this world? And with whom does the power to decide the fate of its people lie? The answer has been the same each of the first three weeks, hasn't it? It's the Lord God Almighty who has, has that authority. No matter how great a nation might appear to be, no matter how powerful a king might be, no matter how, how uh, sorely oppressed and defeated the people of God might appear to be, the God of heaven, the great and mighty God, is king over all the earth. And he does not share power, and he doesn't suffer despot kings lightly and he does not abandon his people to their fate. One of the great things, uh, as well as the challenges of Daniel, is that it's, it's essentially a different week but the same sermon. I hope you'll find, though, the materials it keeps it fresh, at least uh, it has for me. So three things we see this week as we, as we look at this, this passage. First, we see the anatomy of the human heart. Secondly, we see saving faith in action. And third, we hear the, the tenderheartedness of God towards his people. So first, let's look at the anatomy of the human heart. Nebuchadnezzar uh, may be a, a powerful king, but he is one frustrating human being. Let's recap his experience up till now. Back in chapter 1, uh, he, he conquers Jerusalem. He takes their best and brightest away. Uh, he brings them to Babylon, and, and they're, they're serving him in Babylon. And after training these men... Uh, Daniel, together with these three men that we'll refer to by their Babylonian names, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're found to be greater than anyone else in the whole kingdom. They're fitter, happier, more productive, and so forth, not to mention wiser than anyone else in the kingdom. And so he he promotes them. Uh, He gives them these important positions. They're the very best of the very best. Then he starts... Nebuchadnezzar starts having bad dreams. And these dreams so disturb him that he demands his, his wise men and, and fortune tellers to tell him both what the dream was and what the dream meant. And he threatens to kill them if they don't do it. And they don't do it. But before he can put them to death, Daniel steps in and he says, I, I'll, I'll, I, I, can, I can tell the king what he's asking for. And he, he goes and he prays and the Lord's able to reveal to him the, the content and the meaning of this dream. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is astounded. And he gets praise to God. But, but what we see today is that his heart didn't actually change, did it? Remember what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw this, this great statue representing his and three other nations that would follow him. And the top was Babylon. And Babylon was made of gold. It was a head of gold. It was glorious. It was brilliant. It was the best of them all. But what happened? Well, a rock was cut out. And it smashed the statue, and the, the wind blew the the remains away like, like chaff. And then the rock grew to fill the whole earth, representing the kingdom of God. Now, again, Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, and he honored Daniel, but his dream and its revelation had no impact whatsoever on his heart. In fact, what we see this evening is that it served to only make him fight all the harder against the revelation of God. What do you do when when you're a, a hard-hearted despot with seemingly limitless resources and a massive ego who's, who's just seen a vision of a, a statue that suggests you might not be as good as you thought you were. Well, naturally, you set out to prove the vision wrong, don't you? What's Nebuchadnezzar do? He sets out to build an even greater statue than the one that he saw in his dream. The problem with the statue and the vision was that it had been corrupted by these other nations, but if he could create a nation even greater than, than these others that would follow, then, then certainly that would last forever, wouldn't it? If he could make this, this incredible kingdom better than the one of the vision, if the statue was all about him, if the whole statue was gold, then almost certainly uh, this kingdom would last. So he goes out into the desert and he builds this, this massive statue this massive tribute to himself and his kingdom. It was, it was roughly 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And it was made of gold. And whether that was solid gold or gold-plated, it's, it's kind of irrelevant, isn't it, when you think about it? This was a lot of gold. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue had a, had a, it was a statue of gold, silver, bronze, and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar says, there's no silver, bronze, iron, or clay here. There's only gold. My kingdom is the one that will last. I'm the writer of history. I'm greater than the kings revealed to me by the so-called God. You know, this is a guy who who thinks he can be God, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of guy who has, I did it my way played at his funeral twice, with the poem Invictus read in between. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the determiner of, of, of my life, of my fate. You know, we, we might look at this and, and think to ourselves, how, how pathetic is that? Isn't it disgusting how, how corrupting power is? It's typical of the power to, powerful to act like this, isn't it? And the fact is no one in this room has ever been a king, at least not that I'm aware of. Any show of hands, kings, queens? Anybody? No? Okay. I didn't give you much time, but I just assumed no hands were going to go up. But, but you know, most of us have never exercised the kind of power that, that Nebuchadnezzar exercised. You know, the most power I ever had was was at university when I was the vice president of a beer brewing society. And I was only vice president. Wasn't even the president. And it's been all downhill since then. Mm-hmm. You know, we've never had the power to be this heinously stupid with it. But our hearts are no different from that of Nebuchadnezzar. Every one of us wants to create our own little kingdom, don't we? To have our own little legacy. We see that really in the, the works of the, the officials towards God's followers. The king builds this statue and the, they commands everyone to, to worship it whenever they hear the gong, and anyone who doesn't will be thrown into a fiery furnace. This is a, quite a serious thing, and when the king's wise men see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego haven't obeyed the command of the king, they, they rat them out, don't they? You hear the pettiness and the jealousy in it, don't you? In verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Look, you—you've got these guys that you've appointed to important positions. We could—we could fill those positions. These guys don't even listen to you. Why? Why would you want them? Why would you want them in charge? These officials, like the king, want to build their own little, little kingdom, don't they? They know that they—they're probably not going to be as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar himself, but they—they want to go as high as they can, and they see these three guys standing in—in in the way of that. True, these three men were were partly responsible for saving their lives back in chapter 1. That was two chapters ago and several years ago. You know, maybe they bought them a pint to say thank you. Who knows? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing in the way of their, their advancement. So they sell them out to the king. Let's be really honest about this. Daniel here lays bare the, the, the heart of humanity in its most natural state. Like Nebuchadnezzar and his officials... We are in active rebellion against God. We're fighting a losing battle with history and and his kingdom. Yet we're stubbornly fighting it anyway. Daniel in the the gospel calls us actually to wake up and recognize the God who is king over the kings. The God who is king over all of the kings and is gracious and merciful to his people and who calls us to repent and turn to him. This is what we see actually in our second point this evening, we see saving faith in action. You don't get the sense that these three men were, were taking a, a really dramatic stand. They didn't get up and loudly refuse to bow down to the statue, did they? I'm not sure the, the king would have even noticed if they hadn't been, hadn't been told on by the wise men. What, what we have to understand is, is that even as we're, we're called to live quiet and respectful lives, And even when we we don't attempt to, to rock the boat necessarily, we're just trying to be quietly obedient to God, even then the evil of this world will find us out. I don't intend that to scare you. But what I want us to see is that it's okay to quietly obey God and follow Jesus without making a fuss about it. But we should still not be surprised and we should actually be fully prepared when there's consequences for that. The king's told about their disobedience, and he brings them before him and, and gives them that one last chance to comply. Look at verse 15. It's, it's quite striking. Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe lyre, trigon harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, it gets tiring saying those over and over again. But if you're prepared when you hear all those noises, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is the best bit. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's met him. And he still goes, who's going to help you? Who could could possibly save you? What God could intervene and save you? See, that last question is not simply Nebuchadnezzar being blasphemous and showing how hard-hearted he is. It's actually nothing less than the king of this world giving voice to the question that's on every one of our hearts. Who is the God who will deliver us? Will the gods of this world, the, the powerful kings and rulers, be the ones who deliver us? If so, then we must give, give in to their demands. But if there's a greater God than them, if the God of the universe that we wholeheartedly believe will deliver us, then we when the moment comes, we must willingly we must be willing to, to take a stand. Sometimes it might be a quiet stand, and sometimes it might be a dramatic stand. And that's what we see here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do it, don't we? They they say that, that our God, O King, is the one who can save us from the fiery furnace, who can save us from your hand. And even if he doesn't, he's still good. He's still our God. He's still merciful. You see, this is where faith becomes action. It's where the, the things that, that are unseen meet the things that are seen. And we have to come to grips with with what is, what is most real and most worthy of our worship. See, as God's people, we, we make these decisions every single day, don't we? Often in small ways. The decisions we make at work to be to be honest to clients rather than than to lie to save face. The decisions we make at school to, to perhaps challenge even, even the things our teachers teach us at time to, from time to time, the falsehoods that they put forward rather than to, to accept them as absolute truth. The decisions we, we make to do the, the easy things and follow the culture in order to avoid tensions. The the rainbow flag at the desk in June for LGBTQ plus whatever month. We make these little decisions every day, don't we? And sometimes we we make those decisions to, to avoid the tensions. The fact is that it would have been easier for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to just bow down to the idol. The truth is that many Christians today wouldn't fault them for that, would they? Many would say, They should, they would, they, they, they should, uh, what would make the most sense is to be respectful of the religion of their culture and to show love to the people around them because that's what God would want us to do. He's all about love. The fact is that if they had done what many Christians today would have done, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You see, faith is most powerful not when, not when it, it, uh, uh, not when it gives us an excuse to blend in, but when it calls us to trust in God, the God that we claim to follow, even when we can't see how he can save us. The fact is he doesn't always save us, and, and at least not in the, always in the way that we may want or expect him to. The history of the church is littered with martyrs, with people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who took the same stand and refused to bow the knee to the gods of this world, and, and they were killed for it, often brutally. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs uh, has, has recorded a lot of these, and it's worth looking up. But the early church of the first, first and second century would have, would have uh, wrestled with this very issue. In those days, they were living under the Romans and, and Roman authorities who were uh, required everyone to, to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor as a god. And so the church had to decide, each individual Christian had to decide, am I going to burn the incense, or am I going to potentially be burned myself? Many of them had to take that stand. We won't burn the incense to the emperor. This isn't a new issue for the church. It's not a new issue for God's people. How we live in a secular world, a world uh, that lives in outright hostility to God, has been a central issue for pretty much... Pretty much forever so what kind of example has been set for us the the fact is these three men here didn't know they would be rescued when they made their stand did they they said God could rescue us he could deliver us from the fiery furnace but they didn't assume he would what they did what they did know was the the content of the dream given to the king a dream they understood the interpretation of better than the king himself. That that the rock, the kingdom of God, that would, would, would fill the whole world, that this this God, even if he allowed them to die, would somehow bring them to new life. They would still be part of his kingdom even, even in death. That this God alone was worth following and being faithful to. They didn't know salvation until they were standing in the flames of the furnace, and that, that folks, is, is the nature of the Christian life. We don't always know salvation until we're standing in the furnace, but we're called to the furnace, never knowing how we will be delivered, only knowing that we will be delivered whether on this side of eternity or on the other. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was angry at this stand, and that, that was taken wasn't he? He was so angry he had this furnace that was seemingly constantly lit. It would be almost like the gallows uh, constantly before his people or, or uh, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the gallows or something like that, that that's constantly there as a reminder to, to be obedient, to do as the king commanded them to do. It would be constantly lit as this reminder to the people of the consequences of disobedience to him. He had it stoked to be seven times hotter than usual, it was so hot that the, the men who, who who bound and took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go to the opening of, uh, of, of the, the furnace were killed themselves. They were burned alive. But that was okay, wasn't it? Because life was was cheap to this king. And so the men are, are tossed in and 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 nothing happens. They're thrown into the, this, this fiery flames and nothing happens. They enter the flames and, and there they are. They can still see them. And in fact, they, they see a fourth person in there with them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, But I, I, see a four, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're, they're not hurt. And the, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, there's a long-standing debate among theologians as to to who this fourth person was. Was it uh was it a pre-incarnate Christ an epiphany or or was it an angel? The fact is we don't know. But here's the point, and it's it's a simple one. God never ever 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 abandons his people. Ever trying to say that as many times as I've said the, the list of instruments he never ever ever abandons his people but if you're going to be one of his people you, you have to trust him and you have to, to trust him in the fires of this world because the Christian life is a call to the furnace that's why it's so important that we understand just how trustworthy this great God is and that's what we see in our, our third point this evening the tender heartedness of God his people why was it that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could, could have such faith how was it that, that when their lives were at stake they could, they could follow God into the very fires of the furnaces of the kings, the king of Babylon the answer is because they could read and because they were willing to take God at his word Back in the prophet Isaiah, God warned his people of of coming captivity to the the king of Babylon. He also made them a a bold promise in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. These would be the words that followed shortly after our call to worship tonight. And here's what it says. He says, "But, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And the, the, the payoff here. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Can you hear the tenderness of God towards his people? Even people as disobedient as the Israelites. He says, I created you, I formed you even. Fear not, because I've, I've redeemed you. I've, I've called you by name. I, I know your name. I know you personally. You're, you're mine. When you walk through the fire, you'll, you'll not be burned, and the flames aren't going to consume you. you know, these are words of, of intimacy and tenderness. Where, where These words of intimacy and tenderness were tested in the fires of Babylon, weren't they? And this great God, the one true God, was, was found faithful. These three men believed God and he, he showed them the strength and power of his steadfast love and faithfulness. We've seen that steadfast love and faithfulness revealed to us as well in our, in our Savior Christ Jesus. In him we, we've been spared the, the fires of, of hell and judgment because he's, he's walked with us through this world. He's paid for our sins in his blood at the cross. And he walked through the death that we deserved and he came out on the other side of it, unharmed and glorified even. You see, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that these three men tasted in the furnace of Babylon, we have received fully in Christ Jesus. The words that God said to those about to go into exile in, in chapter 43 of Isaiah are not that different from the words that Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, as he sent them out into the world to to spread the good news of his coming. As he sends them out into this world of hostility and brokenness. What did Jesus say to them in Matthew 28? He says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Folks, we shouldn't expect this world to to change much. When you look at, at the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar to this episode, you see much the same as, as his reaction to the last episode he's impressed but his heart hasn't, hasn't been touched he gives some, some words of warning to people who would want to speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego but he remains stubborn in his unbelief and hostility to God and thus hostile to God's people in fact our world today is, is much the same But the promises of God to us is that when when we walk through the waters or the flames of this world, we have the fourth man with us. We have the final man, the great and true king of this world, the last king standing. We have our king. We have Jesus, who to us is not like the, the despots of this world, but is tender and loving towards his people and promises to be with us to the end of the world. Jesus promises to take us through the flames of, of, this, of this life right up to the gates of his kingdom. And folks, there are going to be days on this side of eternity when that has to be enough. When the sweetness and mercy and promises of God in our hearts become greater than the, the arrogant and hollow promises of this world. And on those days, we, we have to let those truths walk us to the furnace. See, that's the, the challenge for each of our hearts tonight. That is ultimately the question we're left with. And we each have to square ourselves with. Which king are we going to follow? And how confident are you that he can do what he promises he can do? If you were sitting in parliament and, and you know, a representative of, of the kings of this world comes to the door... And Christ Jesus comes to the door. And they both pound. Which one one are you going to say, let that one in? Which one are you going to admit? Which one are you going to pledge your allegiance to and follow by faith? Let us pray.